One of the richest and most beautiful pictures that Scripture gives us to help us to sort of wrap our heads around our relationship with God and what it is to be the people of God is that of sheep and shepherd. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, God is described as a shepherd tending to his people and we, his people, as sheep, a sheep in need of his care. We are portrayed as animals that desperately need protection and care, that which is found in a shepherd, and we could not survive without one. We don't typically think of sheep as wild animals. Quite the contrary, they are the ones that are typically preyed upon by others. Uh, Plenty of predators go after sheep. It's reported that most sheep deaths worldwide are due to being attacked by some form of predator, typically in the canine category, wolves, coyotes, wild dogs, even domestic dogs have been known to prey on sheep. First mention of of sheep in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 29, where it speaks of shepherds providing water for their sheep, with the implication that if the shepherds had not taken them out for water, had not taken them out to pasture, that these sheep would die or be killed if left on their own. They are fully dependent on the shepherds. And so how the shepherds care for them makes all of the difference. Genesis also gives us the first reference to God as being that shepherd, that one who is protecting and defending and caring for his sheep. It comes from Jacob in Genesis 48:15. He is blessing Joseph and he says, "The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day." There is Jacob caring for this, seeing this God who cares for him, professing what it is to have a shepherd who loves him, who knows him, who has led him. Uh, Jacob is, we know, very familiar with shepherding, and so he is speaking out of the abundance of that background when he describes God as this great shepherd who has cared for generations, the God of his fathers. That imagery of a Helpless sheep, loved and cared for by the shepherd, carries on throughout Scripture, perhaps most famously in Psalm 23, as Phil read to you at the start of the service this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He is beside me. He provides for me. He shows me goodness and mercy all the days of my life. If you would open your Bible, if you have it, to John chapter 10, we're continuing our survey of the Gospel of John and John chapter 10, alongside Psalm 23, is probably uh, the passage that most unfolds this glorious picture of shepherd and sheep imagery that are given in Scripture. Uh, we're going to look at John 10, 1 through 18 this morning and focus in on six examples of the shepherding care of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. Six things that you and I have if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as a result of belonging to the chief shepherd. I'm going to read that whole span just to start with, and then we'll go back through it. John 10, 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking at this point. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. 
This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." Let's talk a little bit about shepherding, shepherds and sheep, particularly at the time that Jesus is speaking these words and how this might have resonated in a culture that understood shepherding perhaps a little bit better than, than ours might today. Shepherds in the Middle East used sheep folds, pens, if you will, where the, the, the sheep were kept uh, both in the city and then out in the pasture when they were out in the wilderness. Um, they had temporary sheepfolds. You see an example of one in that picture there out of brush, essentially thorns and, and tree branches and things put together that designed to keep the sheep in one place as they are out there in the pasture and also designed to slow down any kind of incoming threat to the, to the sheep so that uh, a thief, it's harder for them to get in or a wild animal. They also built uh, slightly stronger ones, as you can see, made out of rock. Again, uh, out in the wilderness place, but smaller enclosure for a, a group of sheep that they could be kept there, a flock of sheep, uh, a little bit more permanent place. In the cities, you see the drawing here, kind of a depiction of what they would have, was a larger sheepfold with little arched areas for shelter, thorns around the top of the walls, kind of ancient barbed wire, if you will, and a place where a number of shepherds could take their flocks and keep them safely. They would all have them in this sheepfold, in, in this pen, this place of uh, protection. All of those images you saw didn't have hinged doors on them. There was always a need for someone to be standing guard, and so you couldn't simply have a door and, and leave it because a thief or a robber could still come through that door. And so in all of these, there is an opening there, and it was not uncommon for the shepherds to take shifts there, lying there at portions of the night and lying across that doorway and being the protection for the sheep, being the, the door or the gate for those sheep that are inside. And so Jesus, in this passage here in John 10, you've already heard this as we've read it, uses two metaphors that go hand in hand, where he describes himself as a shepherd, the good shepherd specifically, and he also says he is the door. And those two complement each other because that is what a shepherd would have done at that time, not only shepherding, leading, caring for the sheep, but also being the protection, the one who is at the door. One more just point of background before we kind of roll into these um, illustrations of, of Jesus' shepherding of us, and that is just context. It's important for us to remember where John 10 falls in the Gospel of John, um, flows right out of John 9. This is one of those places where 
man-inserted chapter breaks are probably not entirely helpful at this point, um, but this, this discussion comes right out of what we saw in John chapter 9. If you were not here last week, we read John 9, which is the healing of the man born blind. And if you remember that account, Jesus heals this man. His neighbors are stunned by the healing. They take the man to the Pharisees because they fully understand at this point in the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees that it is beyond antagonistic. It is now they are out to destroy Jesus. And so they have brought this man to the Pharisees almost as a test case for the Pharisees. What do you do with this? Here's a guy who we've seen begging all of his life, who he has been blind, he's never seen. Now he can see, and he says Jesus did it. So what will you do with that? And if you recall, the Pharisees end up putting themselves in this incredible position of condemning the man because he is praising Jesus at what happened. When the man is brought to him, he, he says, I know what happened. Jesus healed me, this man called Jesus. Uh, and, and, and they are incredulous at that and angry at the man, and he is praising Jesus. And so the, the story ends in John chapter 9 with them essentially excommunicating him. It says they kicked him out. They threw him out of the synagogue. Prior to that, you recall his parents came. The, the Pharisees didn't believe the man, and so they asked his parents to validate the story. And his parents' response was, yeah, that's our son. Yes, he was born blind. And apparently, yes, he can now see. As for all the rest, you'll have to ask him because he's of age. And John inserts at that point to tell us that they're afraid. They are afraid of the Pharisees because they understand what will happen if they say anything praiseworthy of Jesus, then they will be excommunicated. And so there is this fear and intimidation by the religious leaders against the people. So when we come to John chapter 10... What we're seeing when Jesus begins to talk about thieves and robbers, he is drawing out this analogy of, of sheep and shepherd. Not only in Scripture do we have the analogy relating to God as the shepherd and his people as the sheep, but we also have in Scripture the Bible using the sheep and shepherd analogy to talk about the leaders that God has appointed to be over his people, those that he has put in place both in, in the Old Testament times, both secular and spiritual leaders, were regarded as shepherds. They were to care for the people as God was. They were to model their, their protection, their leadership of the people as a shepherd would his flock. And, and so we see it in the New Testament. The, the description of elders, one of the description is they are shepherding. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it speaks of Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd in, in 1 Peter 5 verse 4, but beneath him are those who have been appointed to minister to God's flock. And then so 1 Peter 5 2 says, shepherd the flock of God among you, as he's speaking to the elders at that point, those who have been called to minister in that place. There are repeated warnings in the Old Testament to those who are leaders of the people for their ability to destroy those who God has given to them. There are repeated warnings for the way that they act toward them. One of the most prominent places is Ezekiel 34, verse 2. God says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? That is God speaking through the prophet to those who are supposed to be in charge, supposed to be caring for the people and shepherding the people. And, and, and God is pronouncing judgment on them 
because all they care about is feeding themselves and not protecting the people. A few verses later in Ezekiel 34, verse 8, God says, My sheep have become a prey. My sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. So in judging the leaders of Israel, God is condemning them for putting their own interests before that of the people. All you care about is making sure that you are fed and and that you are provided for. And and this self-interest blinds you to the concerns of the people that you have been called to shepherd. They are evil shepherds. So it's here in John's gospel, as a consequence of what has just happened in John chapter 9, that Jesus now begins to establish this contrast between himself, the good shepherd, and the religious leaders who are the thieves and the robbers. This is an indictment. This is to, to make clear before the crowds that have brought the blind man. The, if you remember, the blind man himself is, is stunned that the Pharisees don't believe in Jesus. I mean, he just he healed me. How can you not believe? How can you attribute evil to this man when, when, he, has, when he has clearly demonstrated the power of God? And this is Jesus now, in, in front of others now, turning this indictment and setting this contrast against those whose primary ambition is, is for themselves. It is nothing but self-service. It is, you are a threat to me. This is, wh- this is why they hated Jesus, because they saw him as a threat to their position, to their esteem, to the people revering them in some way. Now they are beginning to turn toward Jesus, and he is, he is undermining them, and they hate Jesus. And so there's this, this attack on the man who had been healed by Jesus. They are the thieves and robbers, that Jesus now speaks about here in John 10. When he uses that term thief, the, the, the word basically is the idea of somebody who takes something either by cunning or by deception or, or sort of trickery in some way, takes it in secret. A, a robber, when he gives the picture of a robber, someone who does the same thing but with violence. So, so we might distinguish the two as being a, a, a shoplifter or a con artist versus an armed robber over, over here is what, what the illustration is establishing. In terms of, of what Jesus is teaching here in spiritual terms, he is warning about false teachers. He's warning about those who, with cunning or with um, deception or with forcing their authority on others, would go in and, and would destroy the flock, would go in and try to go after people and, and would claim to speak truth and, and might rely on, a, on bits and pieces of truth, but what they are saying is, in fact, not from God. We see this even in false teachers today. They, they will code it just enough in, in some scripture, in some out-of-context Bible verses, and yet what they, they come to, what they ultimately are teaching, is entirely contrary to God's truth, and they are leading people astray and deceiving. Just an example of that. Matthew 7.1 and the use of that nowadays. It used to be back in the day the, the verse that the culture would quote all of the time was John 3.16. That was the verse that was on the big banner behind the goalposts at the football game. It was John 3.16, right? Now, Matthew 7.1 is sort of the culture's voice. Judge not, or you will be judged. And we hear that even from the false teachers. You, you can't judge me. Jesus said, don't judge. I can do what I want. And the, the, the culture loves this idea, especially when it comes to morality. You know, this is my body. I can do what I please. Jesus said, you can't judge me. 
That is not true. Jesus did not call on us to abandon discernment and not use any kind of judgment or call sin, sin. In fact, his point is, before you seek to address sin, judge your own heart first. Check your own motives and your own actions first. That's why he goes on in Matthew 7, 5 to say, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Taking a speck out of your brother's eye requires discernment. It requires the ability to see carefully and to make a judgment. But what he's saying is don't be a hypocritical Pharisee about your judgment. Somebody who's not watching your own heart and maybe doing the same thing or worse, and now you're calling it out in someone else. Look at your own heart and do so with grace and humility. That's just one example, and there's a myriad of ways in which false teaching takes just a, a little piece of scripture, twists it, and begins to deceive people. That's what thieves do. The robbers that he describes is just equivalent to the, the sort of authoritarian, because I said so kind of leadership. You will do this much like the Pharisees. This is how we interpret the law. We are the authorities. You must follow us or risk being kicked out of the community of believers. And so they do so by intimidation. In John 10:1, Jesus now is warning that these sorts of deceivers are a constant threat to the flock. They weasel in and they distort God's truth. They are not a threat to those who are truly his sheep because one of the things that we will see throughout this passage is God protecting his sheep and preserving his sheep. But what they do is they come in and they begin to confuse and to lead people astray. And, and, and so those folks that, that come and they're, they're wanting to understand who Jesus is, they're wanting to hear what this truth is, they are the ones who are being destroyed when he speaks of them stealing and killing and destroying. They are coming in with false teaching and they are leading people away from Christ. That's why, just to set this at the beginning, Jesus Christ describes himself as the door to the sheepfold. He is establishing from the very beginning and will repeat again that there is one sheepfold. It is God's sheepfold and there is one way into that sheepfold and that is through Jesus Christ. Christ. He is the way. He is the one who gives that access. And if anybody tries getting in some other way, they are wrong. He will stress this again when we get down in verse 7 when he talks about being the door of the sheep. So right from the start, what Jesus is doing is by way of contrast is exposing these, these false religious leaders and showing how they are completely out for themselves, and he is contrasting them with himself and his love for the flock. So with that in mind, let me just pick up and talk through these six things that demonstrate the shepherding care of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, then all of these speak to you about what you and I have in Christ. All of these should be an encouragement to you about where you stand in Christ because your shepherd is caring for you and is doing these things in your life. And the first one is we have the call of his voice. Verse 3 says, To this shepherd the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. This is a scene that was very familiar to people in that era, something that is still practiced today. And that is uh, several shepherds would, would stay together, bringing all their sheep into one sheepfold, and they would spend the night there. And then in the mornings, the, the shepherds would call out, and the sheep would be trained to the sound of that one's shepherd. 
and they would go to that particular shepherd who called them out. Um, one commentator who writes on this, who has been in the Middle East even in recent years, describes a visit there of watching this take place one morning as the shepherds come and they sing and they speak. And, and, and slowly but surely, the sheep separate themselves out within the sheepfold, and those that belong to that shepherd follow after that shepherd, and they go with him. The sheep learn the voice of the shepherd, and they are trained to it. It is a picture of how Jesus has called you and I, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, it is because the voice of Jesus Christ called you even when you were lost and dead in sin. And the voice of Jesus Christ called you to salvation and you, by God's grace, followed. By God's work in your heart, are able to follow him, to hear that voice and to respond. There is an intimacy to that. He knows them by name. In fact, verse 14, he says again down there, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. It is a picture of our union with Christ and the depth of that. It is a picture of a Savior who knows us in our sin and, and our weakness and our failings and, and knowing all of that about us calls us nonetheless to be his own, desires us, loves us, and calls us to himself that we might follow him and that he might be our savior. If you remember the story in John chapter 9, the blind man really doesn't hear a lot from Jesus at the beginning. Jesus sees the man, he comes to the man, and he puts mud on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. That is followed then by the man getting lectured by the Pharisees about how we're disciples of Moses and this guy is evil and he did this on the Sabbath and he hears all that the Pharisees have to say and then he is excommunicated and you'll remember then that Jesus comes to him and he hears the voice of the one who called him and he finally sees the one who healed him and he worships him. This is the one who saved him and who redeemed him. This is Jesus who knows that man by name, and who knows you and I by name. I don't know about you, but, but I have to work hard to both learn and remember new names. It just doesn't come as easily, perhaps, as it once did. And so when I, when I meet you as a new person at the door, usually after you've left, I'm taking out my phone and I'm writing myself a note so that I can, I can remember your name, hopefully, so that next week when you come, I can hopefully say it, and then again, I, I'm probably second-guessing myself in that moment and thinking, now, was it that name or was it this name? And, and, and we struggle with names, don't we? Jesus has no such struggle. He knows us. He knows us intimately, and he calls us by name. He calls us from out of our sin, and he calls us to be his own. We have the call of his voice, and secondly, we have him leading in front of us. You see in verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Shepherds used two different techniques when it comes to moving the sheep. They either drive the sheep from behind. Typically we see the, the pictures of that, the, the, the sheep dogs that are used, the border collies and others who, who by their movements and by their eye contact send a message to the sheep and they, they sort of herd the sheep together and move them along. Or this means, which is the shepherd who uses his voice and calls them. And that's what Jesus does. He, he goes before them. Jesus is out front. Jesus faces whatever is coming toward that 
flock before it gets there. Jesus is the one who is standing in front. One commentator writes, The shepherd does not issue commands in a pyramid fashion down to subordinates, nor is a shepherd a whip-carrying organizer who drives the sheep, but the shepherd knows the setting, leads the sheep, and they follow him. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of, of, of what we have in Christ, of being able to follow after Jesus, of, of meditating on his truth and seeing his truth in the word and being able to, to follow that knowing that he is leading us ultimately one day into the presence of his Father in heaven. The other side of that, though, is he describes here as he is leading them out. He's, he's leading them out of where they were before. And so whatever they were in before, whatever sin, whatever life looked like before for you, wherever you were before Christ called you, whatever mess you may have been in, Jesus Christ comes and calls you longs to lead you out, to lead you now as his own, and to walk forward after the things of Christ. He is now leading us forward. Verse 7, let me just pick up. Uh, Verse 6 says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, they did not understand what he was saying to them. It's kind of a broad statement from John of the crowd's response at this point. No surprise that at this point, many still do not really hear his voice in the sense of seeing him as the the shepherd or the Messiah. And so he is teaching this this illustration, if you will, uh, of sheep and shepherd, and they're not fully getting it. Jesus will go on and teach nonetheless. And it's interesting that, that it says, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, and he picks up. We are moving in a point in Jesus's ministry into the final months of his life, and the focus more and more is shifting now to his preparation of the disciples, his preparation of those who will be the ones who will lead forward and and be those under shepherds in the local church. And so he is going to continue to press forward in teaching, even if this figure of speech, as John says, is not entirely clear to them at this point. It will become clear to those who respond to the voice of Jesus Christ. And so he continues, verse 7, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He calls them with his voice. We have his his voice. He leads them. They follow after him. And third, he also protects them. Jesus calls himself the door of the sheepfold. He is the gate. He is the one who is there at that one opening. And he is there as a guardian, if you will, of truth, because he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so there is that sense of exclusivity. When he says, enters by me, in in verse uh, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, the word in the Greek is or through me, it's in an an emphatic place in the grammar. So that, that phrase, through me, is being emphasized at this point. To come to God, it must be through Jesus Christ. So there is that that exclusivity sense in the gospel. But clearly, what he's also describing for his sheep is the security of that. Not only do we come by Jesus Christ, but we are kept by Jesus Christ. He is the one who is our protector, like a shepherd who guards the pen. Jesus is the one who is standing between the sheep 
and any other predators. Jesus is the one who is looking after them. And once in that sheepfold, there is lasting security. He gives that glorious picture in verse 9 of if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. It is Jesus giving this picture of we, we find freedom in Christ. We are able to now walk after our Savior, but to, to go in and out freely knowing we are in the care and protection of our great Savior. And he's provided all of these means for us to help protect us. He puts us in a body of believers. He, he doesn't save us and let us be stray sheep that just sort of wander by ourselves. He puts us in with this flock of sheep. He puts us there so that we can find encouragement within that body of believers, that safe harbor. He gives us his spirit to guard us, to help us to be discerning, to, to hear his truth. He gives us the truth of his word to combat the error of the thieves. All means by which the chief shepherd seeks to protect his people, to ground them in truth, and to cause them to, to, to walk in and out and to flourish in the pastures that he sets before us. And he says it now even more eloquently in verse 10 when he says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We have the sweet call of his voice. We have him leading in front of us. We have his protection. And fourth, we have his abundant provision. Contrast here again. The thieves and the robbers are simply here to take. They, they only want what they can get. They are here to, to appeal to you for whatever they can get from you. We see that on false teachers. If you watch enough TV preaching, you see that money seems to be the measure of all things. Money somehow is the measure of your faith. How much money you give somehow determines just how faithful you are. Everything is about this appeal that ultimately is designed to benefit the false teachers. They are there to take, to rob, to kill, to destroy. Their passion is not for souls embracing Jesus Christ. The passion is for the protection of their own lifestyles. And so they are appealing on that basis and fleecing the flock, destroying people. Jesus has come to give. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's not just quantity of life that he has here in mind. We, we jump to, I came to have life, came that they may have life, and we immediately think of eternal life. We think of that which is glorious, and it is after this life. We have that hope after death. We have that, that, that promise of life that goes on in the presence of God. But his point here is not just that. What he's talking about is, I came that they may possess it now even abundantly, that they may have a fullness of life. The word that he uses here, the root of the word Jesus uses here, means over and above or beyond. It is saying that I have come that they might have not only life to come, but even in this life, a life that is flourishing. It doesn't mean then we, we tend to translate in our secular materialistic culture, flourishing must mean somehow stuff and, and accumulation and prosperity. He's saying abundant life so that even in the worst of circumstances, we have peace. We have comfort from God that surpasses all the understanding of the world, peace of God that passes all understanding. We have hope. We have been rescued. We have meaning and purpose in life so that no matter what happens in this life and no matter what I face, 
I ultimately know who I belong to and what I have in Christ surpasses that because of the hope that I have in him. And, and he's urging us to rest in him as that shepherd and to know his peace, to know his comfort, to know this shepherd who individually cares for the sheep and looks after them. I'm going to read the, the last section again, starting in verse 11. We'll go down through it one more time. The, the last two points, I, just, I think, sort of go together. So let me just read this. I am the good shepherd, verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand, not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. Let me stop on verse 16 for just a moment before we talk about just the last two points. He says, I have other sheep not of this fold, must bring them also, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's talked about sheep in the fold that he calls out in verse 2, and now in verse 16 he says, I have other sheep. The distinction here is, is simple. It, it may seem complicated, but really what he's talking about is what John told us at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and that is the ministry of Jesus Christ was to first come to his own being the Jewish people. He comes as the Messiah, born of a Jewish line, and he comes to his people. And, and John, as he describes it to us, says, and his own did not receive him. As a, as a nation of people, as an ethnic group, widespread was the rejection of Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, there were Jews who came to faith in Jesus Christ. The disciples and others who came after Jesus Christ are sheep who heard his voice and responded to that call and begin to follow him. And so when he says in verse 16, I have other sheep... He's talking about non-Jews. He's talking about Gentiles. And what he's saying is this gospel is not just for the Jewish people. It is to go beyond here, and, and they will hear my voice as well. There will be people who are Gentiles who will hear me, and they will respond, and they will come together, and they will be in this one flock with one shepherd together, believers in Jesus Christ, resting in our shepherd's care. The two remaining benefits, if you will, or things that come to us as a result of being sheep belonging to a shepherd, these two go hand in hand in this last section. We have his gracious love for us, and we have his sacrifice. They go together. Jesus, throughout this whole passage, has used contrasts to teach this. Here's what the thieves and the robbers do. Here's how they are characterized. They are out to destroy at this point. Here's what the good shepherd does. Then in verses 12 and 13, he introduces this new title when he says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd. It's a different title than thieves and robbers, and, and there seems to be a shade of difference here. The hired hand isn't necessarily bent on destruction, isn't necessarily out there saying, I don't care what happens to these sheep. This is just all about me, and I, I'll destroy the sheep if need be so that I'm elevated. But the hired hand doesn't love the sheep either. The hired hand is there to do a job. He's there to get a paycheck. He's there to finish out his week and punch the clock and do his time and, and, and do what he needs to do in order to get paid. 
That's his primary concern at this point. And so he's not going to go out of his way for their well-being. There is no attachment to the sheep. So even if the hired hand is not actively deceiving the sheep or seeking their harm, he's not going to do anything that isn't already within his realm of caring for them. He's not going to go the extra mile because it's not in his job description. And so when the wolf comes, as, as Jesus describes, the hired hand is gone. He's not staying. He's not going to put himself in jeopardy because this is just a job and the sheep are on their own at this point. And Jesus is using this to contrast to himself the good shepherd, the one who loves the sheep. And that love is rooted in the shepherd's relationship with his father. And that's what Jesus says here in, in, in this passage, um, down in verse 17, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus loves the father, he is loved by the father, and his love for the sheep is rooted in his relationship with his father. It is the love between he and his father that is now being poured out upon the sheep and caring for them. It is that same love. John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus loves the sheep. He desires what's best for them. John will write later in 1 John 4, 19, We love because he first loved us. We are his sheep because Jesus set his love on us first. Jesus acted intentionally when we were dead in sin, when we were lost, when we were covered in sin. Jesus acts to make us his own. Jesus speaks by his voice and calls us to himself and saves us to be his own. And the ultimate display of that love for his sheep is in the sacrifice of his own life for us. When we get to John 13, Jesus Christ nearing the end of his earthly ministry, in fact, on the eve of his crucifixion as he's talking to his disciples, John 13, 1 summarizes this and says, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to telos in the Greek, completion. He loved them to fulfillment. He loved them to perfection. It wasn't just a question of Jesus always loved them and right up until the point that he died, in terms of chronology here, that he loved them to the end in that sense. It is saying that he loved them to the, the uttermost, to the, the, the greatest sense you can be loved is the way that you have been loved by Jesus Christ when he has called you to be his own. Because Jesus Christ ultimately gave his life on the cross. The hired hand flees the very prospect of death. The hired hand sees something coming and says, I want none of this, and is gone. Jesus not only remains, but Jesus then gives himself in our place. The greatest threat that faces any of us is that of sin and death. The, the, the power of sin to hold you in slavery to it, and the judgment of death that you and I deserve for our sin. And coupled with that is the wrath of God, the just judgment of God upon our sin. And here is our shepherd out front absorbing the wrath of the Father, the one who does not deserve it, who takes our place and who suffers for us, so that we, his sheep, might be rescued from the wrath of God and saved from the power of sin and death and given life 
and life that is abundant. And so Jesus Christ, four times in these closing verses, speaks of laying down his life. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. And then verse 18, that great statement of I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. Jesus Christ stressing to us, I willingly do this for you. I'm not a hired hand who does this because I've been given this particular assignment. I do this because it is the will of the Father, but I also do it willingly, gladly, to save a people, to save worshipers now who will be his people and will be his sheep. Jesus Christ did not have to die. He didn't deserve to die, and yet he willingly gave his life for the sheep in order to absorb the penalty that you and I justly deserve for our sin against God. Are you resting in these truths? When you see Jesus Christ as shepherd, do you rest in that? Maybe the way to think about that is when you are threatened, when life is hard, when there is... When there are those times when, when we know what those circumstances are, that, that we should flee to a shepherd, where, where do you find your protection and your hope in those moments? When things are, are not going at all like you had thought they would, when life hurts, when the circumstances are bad, where do you run for that protection? Do you do the, the, the little stray sheep, I'm going to run and I'm going to figure this out by myself and I, I, I can make this, I can do this? Because what Jesus, I think, is trying to demonstrate to his followers here is I am the good shepherd. I long for you to run to me. I long for you to find grace and strength from me in those moments. Do we find our, our protection and our hope in listening to his voice and standing in his shadow and trusting in the truth of his word? Because that's what he's calling us to. That's what the good shepherd wants for his sheep is that we would see that he desires to lead and he desires for us to follow. The way we follow is by being in submission to his spirit and meditating on the truth of his word. That's where he speaks to us. If we want to hear his voice, he is speaking to us again and again and again in his word. That's where we need to be listening and submit it to his leadership. And even in the worst case scenario, even when things go the the way we wish they wouldn't, even then, we have peace and hope and a promise that this is not all there is. I want to read, just in closing, from Revelation chapter 7. And this is speaking to those who have suffered and who were martyred for their faith in Revelation 7. Worst case scenario, at least humanly speaking. They have ultimately had to suffer a violent death and they have been killed. And here is Revelation 7. It says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Word of God speaks to us when we are tempted to question and say, I don't feel like it's quite this abundant, flourishing life. The Word of God speaks to us and says, listen, God's Spirit 
is present with you. Jesus is, is with you, and he is protecting you now and caring for you, and he's given you his truth so you would hear his voice. But know this, this is not all there is. There is hardship and there is pain, but this is not all because one day we will be in the presence of the Lamb who is our shepherd. And we will never hunger and he will take us to springs of living water and, and pasture us and we will rejoice in his presence and he will wipe away every tear. That is what our shepherd holds for us. That is our great hope in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for creating in man a sense that, that need, uh, that quality of dependence. Lord, you have made us to be a dependent people. We are not to be all sufficient on our own. But ultimately, you have made us to find our greatest strength and hope in resting our souls in you and resting our lives in your hands and trusting that our creator knows us best. Father, thank you for not making us dependent just simply to show off your strength and greatness even though you are strong and mighty and great, but also as a way of, of then calling us to yourself and calling us into the shelter of your presence and calling us into the the place where we realize we need living water and we need sustenance and we need your truth and we need your care. Thank you, Father, for creating us to be sheep, but then being for us a gloriously kind and loving shepherd. Thank you for sending your son to be the perfect lamb, the one who was spotless and without blemish and yet who took on himself all of our sin all of our spots and blemishes, all of the things that mark us as different from you, as sinners, as frail, as, as those who violate your law. Thank you for taking that on your son, Jesus Christ, placing that on him and, and him willingly giving himself. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the chief shepherd. Thank you for being the one who goes out before us and who, who took the cross, who endured its suffering, in order that you might die in our place and take what we deserve. Lord, I pray that as believers in Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would remind us again this week of what we have in Christ as our shepherd. When we are tempted to complain that life feels anything but abundant, when we are tempted to believe that we've been somehow left outside the fold on our own. Thank you for reminding us again of the truth from Scripture, of the sweet sound of the call of your voice as it comes to us through your word and appeals to us to rest in you and find hope in you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning not yet trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would set in their heart that image of that sheepfold that really stands as, a, as an image ultimately of your presence of heaven, of one day standing before you, and the truth that there is only one way. Our, our world, our culture wants to argue for pluralism, that there are many ways to find God and to find contentment. Thank you for the claim of Jesus that he is the way and the truth and the life. Thank you for the 
the fact that he gave himself as a ransom for sinners and rose again to conquer death. Lord, might you call this day any who are listening here who are not trusting in Jesus, might they hear the call of your voice and find joy in following after Jesus, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.